Not a secret, can you keep it? Swear this one you'll save Better lock it in your pocket Taking this one to the grave If I show you that I know you won't tell what I said Cause two can keep a secret If one of them is dead Hi guys, alright, let me begin this with stating this episode's gonna be kind of off. Not even positive if you can hear it in my voice, but things are gonna be a little bit different for a bit, and I'm kind of going through it. However, I'm not gonna talk all about it in the beginning of the show. If you wanna know, stick around at the very end and I'll fill you in. Also, if you stick around to the end to hear why everything's kind of wonky and will be for a little while, you're gonna get to hear some extra news about a new podcast that I will be, well, helping create. Anyways, hi, welcome to the newest episode of What the Actual F. At least for this current time when it's being recorded and released, I don't know when you're choosing to listen to it. Maybe this is the 800th time that you've come across this episode, maybe it's your first time. Maybe you just stumbled across this podcast and you found this episode and you were like, ha ha, joke's on you, Harmony. This is two years old, so this is not the newest episode. Anyways, as you can tell, I'm the host and my name is Harmony. Cause I just said it in that joke that was excessively too long. Usually, as this episode is gonna be a little bit different, I do come here weekly and share stories of crime, maybe a disappearance or two, an odd mystery, a conspiracy, and even once in a while, a haunting. Truth be told, things that are strange, unusual, creepy, eerie, and murderous have always been interesting to me. I know, that makes me sound really fucking weird, but (laughs) I am, so deal with it. Or instead of dealing with it, you can come here weekly and hear all of these odd stories that I find that really happen around our globe, which in so facto would make you weird too. Also would make us besties. Okay, enough me being weird for like a few moments and let's get real. So in all of my searching and learning about the really fucked up shit that we do to each other as humans, I came across a killer who was caught in the middle of a news interview, but, but, but nobody knew he was caught. If, listen, this guy named Stephen McDaniels is, mm, he plays this like, I'm super innocent and I'm totally just here to help, but yet he's the reason people were there needing any help, if that makes sense, because he murdered his neighbor and fellow student. But while she was being looked for, he was joining in, even being interviewed by the news crew. All, oh my God, we're just so sad because nobody's seen her. Oh, you haven't heard? A body was discovered. What is your take about that? Uh. (laughs) What? Did you say a body? Oh, shnikes. Listen, this story is, it's bonkers, bananas, and crazy. Because not only was Mr. Stevie Boy caught, but in the middle of his actual interview with police, he was like, I ain't saying shit. 
ain't guilty. It wasn't me. It was a one-armed man. I don't know why I'm doing that with my voice. It's probably really annoying for you guys and I promise I'm gonna stop. No, but for real, I know I'm being a little odd, but this guy, he's odd, like really odd. I mean, besides the fact that he murdered somebody, which isn't exactly just like <laughs> the normal thing you do on a Tuesday afternoon. So he's obviously a bit odd himself, but like, but let me just, let's go ahead and begin the story of the murder of Lauren Giddings and you can decide how fucking weird her murderer, Stephen McDaniels, is. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, now that we've had a very long intro, it's time to dive in. Because I'm here to remind you that monsters aren't in your closet or under your bed. I mean, technically they could be, because a person can fit there, so who knows? But the fact remains, monsters are real because most of the time, they're right next to you. That's because they're human, in case you didn't catch on. <clears throat> okay, now let's talk about murder. <laughs> I promise, guys, this is only gonna last for a few episodes. I know, I'm a little weird, but uh, I'm sorry. WGXA first interviewed McDaniel the day after Lauren Giddings was reported missing in June of 2011. Reporter Michelle Casada found him standing outside the apartment building where he and Giddings had lived and that we now know was the scene of the crime. He talks about joining Giddings' friends to look for his law school classmate and how they entered her apartment to see if there was anything wrong. It was also the first time McDaniel found out that a portion of Lauren Giddings' body had been recovered by police from the dumpster where he had put it. Knowing now that McDaniel had murdered and dismembered Giddings, the interview provides a glimpse inside the mind of a killer as he builds his story and his alibi. Take a look. Stephen McDaniel was caught, but he really didn't seem to act like it, even though his days as a free man were definitely over. He was working under the guise more of like, well, if I don't admit it and I don't say anything, <laughs> you ain't got shit. He sat in a chair in a very small room. It was small because it was at a police station and used for interrogation. A hidden camera was affixed on him. Stephen was sitting in the crosshairs of a murder investigation, one of which at the time the city had rarely ever even seen. At this point, however, Stephen could have just gotten up out of the room, walked right up to the police and said, either handcuff me or don't. Did you charge me or did you not? Like, let's do something. And maybe they would have been like, all right, you're right. We are not charging you, so go ahead, go home. But they would be coming for him anyways. However, instead, on this fateful night in June of 2011, Stephen didn't try to leave. He sat in this room and let detectives grill him. They only had questions really about one thing, or I guess I could say like one person. It was a little after around 11 o'clock at night and Stephen, who was a month earlier just graduating from Mercer University's law school, meaning he no doubt knew his rights. I'm sure by now he was realizing just why he was sitting where he was and who they were questioning him about. And that would be Lauren Giddings. Lauren was the center of a murder investigation that wasn't even 12 hours old. Earlier in this very same day, around 9.40, 10 o'clock in the morning, police began searching for a missing girl as we know the name of Lauren. However, while they're looking for Lauren, somebody got a whiff of like a really rough smell, one that was very pungent to the nostrils. 
This scent was an awful lot like decay, and that of not just any decay, but the human body kind. This scent was coming from a dismembered torso. The torso was located in a trash can just outside of the Georgia Avenue apartments. The very same ones that Steven and Lauren were neighbors at. Hmm, this is a small world, right? It's crazy, it's like the police just absolutely knew it was Steven. I don't know, it's a little bizarre, right? I know, I know. No way he could have like murdered anybody. He's such a good guy, he was searching for her. He really cared about her. I mean, it's like he said in the interview on the news. Wait, you know what? After we get done with this little bit that I'm telling to you, I'll play his little oh shit moment where he realized he'd been caught on air. However, before he realized that, he really laid it down just how she hadn't been seen and how the last time anyone heard from her was because of an email and how we're all so worried about her. Yes, Steven. <laughs> so worried. Now, at this point, the clock was ticking. Yeah, not just for Steven, but also for investigators. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit before I play some audio. However, I do want to state that Stephen would, just before the trial, go ahead and say, you know what, I did done do it. In simple terms, he said, I'm guilty. Yep, it's just like they said, I killed her. Stephen would give a full confession and plead guilty and end up taking up ranks among one of the highest profile crimes in history of the area. He would go on to be sentenced to life in prison when he admitted to strangling her and then dumping her missing limbs into a trash can where he was living right by, you know, right outside the apartments. Super smart, <laughs> keep it right close to home. They're never gonna be able to like connect the dots, obviously. He also went to school just across the street from the apartment, so like he really kept it very triangular, which is something that often killers do. They kind of have their own little stomping grounds. Him and Lauren had actually just graduated a month before, so for somebody who knows the law, he's real fucking stupid. Anyways, on the first day when the cops were repeatedly asking him what had become of Lauren, he just sat there playing dumb. I have no idea, Lauren? Hmm? I don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know Lauren. No, he knew her. However, he didn't say, oh no, I don't know her. He just acted like he had no idea what had become of her. I don't, I don't know. And I, I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen her since Saturday. Nobody else had either. But he was hiding a big secret that he would eventually share. As the night of his interrogation would drag on, leading into the early hours of July 1st, he would continue to ignore questions and he would just sit in silence. You know, if I don't say it, I don't admit it. It's not true. That means I'm not guilty. But Stephen, in his little act, would mess around and say a little bit too much. Person that was living there? Yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, we're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and I mean, no one's heard from her since. And did you see her hang out with anyone at the time, anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, you always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, 
The only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because I mean, we went at, we went over. One of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss. But I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it. So there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. I mean, what about um, in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, any, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? Uh, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. To say that Steven sort of played this cat and mouse game with police is a very big understatement. So it's just after 11 o'clock at night when Detective David Patterson walks into the interview room to see Steven. Steven, who was sitting in a chair dressed in black flip-flops, a navy t-shirt, and jean shorts, just staring off into space. David was there to share that Lauren's torso had been identified and correlated to her, meaning they identified it as her body, or like a part of it. Her father had traveled down from Maryland since the discovery of, well, that very torso earlier that day. So this detective David told Steven certain things of what he knew about Lauren, you know, like, hey, we do know she's dead and we do know that that is her torso. However, he did leave Steven in the dark about how, I guess you could say, Steven was connected and how they could tell he was. They also didn't, as a police unit, let him know just how much they did or didn't have. I guess they kind of played their own version of cat and mouse with him to kind of lure him back as well. You know, like they knew he was hiding something, if not for sure killed her, like no doubt. But what all really occurred? They flat out asked him, hey, do you even know where she's at tonight? Steven was just... No. David, this detective, looked at Steven and was like, I'm basically asking you as a friend, we just need your help, dude. Can you help me? Steven, just almost emotionless, I don't know. Like 30 seconds or so later, David's just kind of mystified because they definitely understand that he's gotta know something. Like he's, it's rather fucking bizarre. Like he has to. And David's just like, do you even, like, do you care that we need to find her? Do you, do you want us to? And he's like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I care. And it's crazy, because this isn't even the first time that he had been sitting in that very police station to talk about Lauren. 12 hours earlier, him and a few friends of hers waltzed in there to give statements about the fact that she had disappeared. You know, because he's so worried about his friend. <clears throat> oh, crock of shit. Now, his neighbors had actually consented to searches of their apartments because they didn't have shit to hide. However, Stevie Boy was like, you are not going in my apartment without a search warrant. I don't think so. And that's because I don't have anything to hide. Like, okay, yeah, I get it. Everybody wants to wait until they have consent and they have a warrant because it's your privacy and it's your protected. I get it, okay? Yeah. But also, if you absolutely positively know that there is no 
anything in your apartment that can link you to the murder of somebody because you didn't fucking do it and it's gonna take a quick little 10 minutes why would you make it so difficult because like it just makes you look either a like you're guilty or b like the biggest twat in the fucking world who really needs to stand in between the answers of a murder investigation like who done did it or you know just be the asshole to be the asshole because you don't want cops in your house. Like, I get it. Cops can be annoying. They don't really put the feeling of safety in us. They put more of a fear into us. However, don't be that douchebag. And Steven was, but that was because he did have something to hide. So <laughs> makes a little bit of sense. He didn't want to get caught. But if you have nothing to hide, just let them look. Okay. All right. Or also don't. I don't know. You can be a twat. I don't want to. I'm already a twat in many people's story. I don't need to like willingly be another one in another story. Now, he was asked by David, like, hey, why are you making this so fucking difficult for us? Like, why? This bitch. Steven looks David in his eye holes and is like, it's the lawyer in me. <laughs> I think you meant killer or murderer. There, fixed it for you, Stevie boy. No, he said, I'm just protective of my space. You know, it's the lawyer in me. Probably threw in a little. Because <laughs> he wanted to seem all calm, not any, any smug at all. By the time all talking and discussing were done, he agreed to allow them to just like waltz around his apartment, but of course he had to be present. And he said this was a course because he cared and he wanted to help them find Lauren, but he had to be there and it was only where he wanted them to go. But like, he totally cared, obviously. Duh. I'm here to help, but only for like certain things, okay? Don't go in the closet. He didn't say that. But he did hang around the apartments all day like he had shit to do. Or maybe he really had nowhere to go. Or maybe, just maybe, he wanted to make sure they weren't gonna find his little oopsies that he had done earlier. Spoiler alert, as you know, they did. And he was sitting in a lot, a lot, a lot of, uh, <clears throat> sorry, he was in a lot of fucking trouble. Many people believe the reason that Steven did stick around was sheer curiosity. Curious to see, was he gonna get caught? That up until the last couple of weeks of your case, I was strongly in your corner. But this computer evidence that came in, the GBI, the fact that you uh, peeking in this kidney's apartment, uh, that was that was very important. Uh, but the basis of plea was was that kind of evidence that came in. Plus the graphic, specific, detailed confession that you made to Frank Hogan and I, which we were shocked about in the jail, and which you went into terrific detail about how you killed Warren Giddings, how you went about decapitating her, carving of her body, how you even sat down and cut off every finger and thumb and appendage on her hands and threw them all in the toilet and flushed it at one time uh, and then combine that with the searches on the internet the fact that you had done searches about having sex with dead people things of that nature all of that combined to a heavy, heavy evidentiary problem in your case. On top of that, you possess the most horrific 
child pornographic photos I've ever seen. And I've been practicing law for 33 years. On June 30th, that night, when Stephen was sitting in the interrogation room, his little act that he was under was so different than what he had shown earlier. In fact, David, this detective that was interviewing him, looked at Stephen and was like, hey, why are you shutting down? Because earlier, when Stephen came in with their friends to talk about the fact that Lauren was missing, he was really chatty and seemed a lot more helpful. Now, however, he was very, like, mm, robotic, very monotone, very, like, mm, mm. Literally, when he was asked, why are you doing this? Like, why are you shutting down on me, dude? What's going on? He was just, I don't know. He seemed to have a lot to say earlier. In fact, in the now notorious interview in which he appeared to show severe concern for his missing neighbor, Lauren, while being interviewed by a very, very, I guess you could say she would end up being bewildered reporter as she was talking to him. Steven was just over here like, and then she was just gone, telling her how nobody could find her and how nobody knew where she was. Then suddenly he turns white as a ghost and almost looks like he's about to faint. As the fact that the reporter states that a body, or at least a part of a body, had been found. Literally, David Patterson, this detective, is like, dude, you were running your mouth to the news. The reporter is just like sharing so much. And now you're sitting here in front of me and I can't get you to really talk. What the fuck? is up. In fact, he was starting to get a little bit pissed, and apparently he started cussing at Steven. Quote, you know, you're a sorry piece of shit that doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> David the detective ain't playing, mm-mm. Okay, I was trying to snap, but that, that didn't sound that threatening. Let's just pretend that it was, okay? So I don't know if you're aware or watch any movies or anything that has to do with crime, but usually every once in a while, a tactic that is used is like, you know, did I say tactic? I meant tactic. Is uh, used where they throw a photo or even a crime scene photo of the victim to try to see if they can get a reaction from whoever they're interviewing. In fact, I got to do a scene of this on a recent music video and it was like literally stock photos of like crime scenes. And I remember, he was like, don't react. And I'm looking and I'm like, oh, dude, those look real. And he's like, because they, they are. And I was like, what? And he's like, I'm just kidding. No, they're just really good. And I'm like, yeah. Just some, yeah, tell me. <laughs> Seriously, just kidding. It was just really great stock photos. But they did this to Steven. David was like, ooh, look at that, it's Lauren. And guess what? Steven was just like, literally didn't do anything. Didn't flinch, didn't respond, nothing. No reaction. At this point, Steven's like, dude, can you just like tell me at the very least where are the rest of her remains? Like, you got, you know that, right? Like, you got it, because you're just being real fucking weird. Tell me that. And Steven's just over here, oh, I don't know. I have no idea, dude. Of course, David's like, mm, no, I think you fucking do, buddy. I think you fucking do. At this point, it's like a little after 11.30, and another detective steps in the room by the name of Scott Chapman. He shows Steven another photo of Lauren, placing it on the table directly in front of him. This pretty little girl right here, yeah, your neighbor, she's missing. Steven immediately is like, I didn't do anything to her. Scott takes a chair, pulls it over to Steven, puts his hand on Steven's shoulder, and then he gets loud. I'm not gonna yell because I don't know if you're listening to this in like 
a very odd situation where if I yell, you jump, everyone's going to stare at you because you listen to headphones. If you're in your car or whatever, I don't need to yell. Just imagine that I am. Scott yells, there's blood in your apartment, Stephen. You didn't get it all up. Stephen just sits there saying nothing. I think he knows his geese are cooked. Our goose is cooked? Geese is gooses? <clears throat> his bird's done did. His ass is grass. And they're the lawnmowers. The, the cops are. <clears throat> Let's continue. So Scott looks at Stephen and is like, do you watch CSI, my guy? Stephen has no reaction, because of course, why not? I'm betting he probably wishes he did. But again, we don't know if he does, because he didn't say anything. But if he had, he'd probably know exactly why Scott was asking, because Stephen was caught. She never mentioned being in fear for her safety. One trip home, and I think it was a year before she had mentioned, like, sometimes when she came home, she felt like things had been moved around or someone had been in her apartment. Busy with her law life, Lauren didn't think much about the curious incident. But was this popular and talented student unknowingly becoming someone's prey? She's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Fellow graduate Stephen McDaniel tells our Macon affiliate, WGXA, he knew her well. He also attended Mercer and lived across the street from the law school. Stephen had reportedly asked her on a date. Lauren declined because she had been dating someone else. Talk to me about the guy she was dating. David is his name. They had been dating for a few years at that point before she even started law school. So they had broken up at some point and then gotten back together. But now a busy weekend had come and gone, and strangely, Lauren was suddenly nowhere to be found. Stephen told the police that he was paying his bills and getting by on student loans. He also mentioned how his apartment lease was up in two weeks and he was heading back to Lilbourne to live with his folks. Lilbourne? I don't know how to say that, actually. <laughs> Just after midnight... Steven and Scott and David are kind of in this, like, standoff. However, they notice that Steven has some scratches on his stomach and they look really fresh. In fact, they didn't look like he had just grazed his abdomen on anything. They looked as though a female with some nails may have done that. And yeah, maybe it was in a sex capade, or maybe it was in a murderous intent to uh, kill, you know? Maybe his victim was clawing for her life. However, Steven said that's not at all possible. <laughs> no, I, uh, I cut myself while I was sleeping. Yep, I know. It's, it was, it was, I was, I was dreaming about banshees and I, my nails was just like the only weapon. And I apparently cut myself, this is crazy. And then, I feel like the need to share this with you. When Steven was asked, hey, do you wear the same pair of underwear like more than one day at a time? Stevie boy is like, gross. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Ew. Gross, Steven. That's nasty. <laughs> now, Steven was this like survivalist type of person. He had a lot of stuff stockpiled in his house, like food and drinks, sports drinks, and so much more. And uh, the detectives asked him, so why? Like, why do you feel the need to wear underwear more than one day at a time? Just, you know, curious, my guy. <laughs> and he said, well, it's clean enough to still wear. Oh my God, Steven, you're nasty. 
While all this talking about how gross Steven really is, he leans over a legal pad for the detectives and they shake out his hair, believing that there's no doubt during the struggle that he had with Lauren that part of her ended up on him in some way. Her DNA had to be on him. Now, at this point, the detectives are like, hey, we want to give you the opportunity to just tell your story. Tell us what happened. Be it whether they wanted it for them to be able to put him behind bars or, you know, to help him. <laughs> it definitely wasn't that. But they did say, hey, if you tell us, it'll help you not look so much like a monster in the end. I mean, they even said, you know, she probably screamed, right? The detectives even stated how they could see that it was bothering him. They could see how he felt about it, that something must have just come over him. Over and over and over, Stephen is telling the detectives that he just didn't do anything. He didn't do it. In between his silence, you know, no, I didn't do it. I don't know. Mm -mm, wasn't me. Finally, one of them looks at him and is like, Stephen, I can see it. You are literally having a massive meltdown right now. You can't live with yourself. You hurt her, Stephen. He kept quiet, no real reaction, just sitting. He stayed in his seat as the detective left the room, almost looking like he's catatonic. Minutes later, the detective walks back in and uh, he says, somebody always leaves something at a crime scene. Looking directly at Steven, he says, you're not gonna win, too much evidence. I'm guessing Steven should have talked when he was first asked to <laughs> instead. Hmm, well, the police had to paint their own picture, and it's pretty graphic. I don't know. Steven, you know! Where? I don't know. Steven! You're gonna look at this right here, this little girl right here, and you're gonna say you don't know? I know you know! I don't know. Yes, you know. What are you going to say tomorrow when I say we got your hair with the body? What are you going to say to me then? Because you know, like I go like that. Look at my hair. That's how easy it falls out. Look at all that on your head. You don't think nothing fell out? It did. After 1 a.m., this detective by the name of Carl Fletcher decides to take a chance at talking to Steven. He had worked in the unit for homicide, vice, and gangs for several years and is now retired. However, he did get Steven to start chatting all about eHarmony, you know, the online dating site. He talked about how he visited it often, but he didn't really have any luck. Carl even started asking him about his hair because one thing that you can't I guess see because this is a podcast and you use your ears is Stephen had a lot of hair like a lot a lot Stephen told Carl you know I just decided to grow it out the detective then started asking more about his grooming habits he even asked him what kind of toothpaste he uses to which Stephen said Colgate they really just wanted to try to get Stephen to talk he was asked how many times he would bathe, to which he said a couple times a week. He said mainly when he just got sweaty, he would shower and clean himself, but otherwise, eh, you know. He did state, however, that he used deodorant, which is a plus. Especially if you live in Florida, you'll learn that a lot of people don't. <laughs> and it gets hot here, so it's real stinky. At this point, the detective told Stephen that he needs to put on his thinking cap. It was enough small talk, it's time to really start to think. 
use that lawyer brain of his and maybe ponder what could have happened to Lauren. I mean, according to the detective, if a complete stranger was going to come into her apartment and kill her, do you really think they're going to have time to dismember her and then throw her in the trash? Actually, he said the fucking trash. So to this, he's like, "Mm, you think a stranger really is going to do that? They're going to take three, four hours to sit and dismember her instead of just fucking leaving? No, really, he said that. Of course, Stephen was like, silent he didn't respond he just didn't didn't react however no matter the amount of questions no matter the amount of scenarios no matter what was shown to him no matter what was said steven would not confess to murder at least not that night however he would still land himself in jail at some point the conversation sort of shifted to steven being a virgin but there were condoms at his apartment And he also told police that he planned on saving himself for marriage. So if that's the case, why would he need condoms? Stephen was asked, why do you have these and where did you even get them? He then said how a couple years back he had gone into a couple fellow classmates apartment while they were gone. Hmm, that's not fucking weird. So then the detective says, was it recently that you decided to start going around and looking for stuff in other apartments or have you been doing it for a long time? Steven says, you know what? I don't remember. I'm not exactly sure how long I've been a creep. Okay, he didn't say that last line, but he might as well have. However, that was enough. He admitted to burglary. He said he had taken one condom from each of the two apartments that he had entered. And he said that the doors were unlocked as the only reason he walked in. Before he was taken to jail, where he would sit for about a month before he was being charged with murder, the police had one last thing to do. They had to get a search warrant. You know, so the real fun could begin. It did, Steven. We just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell it. So you didn't look like a monster at the end. So I've discussed Stephen quite at length. And before I go any further on him, let's discuss Lauren, the victim in this story. Lauren Giddings' family were extremely proud of her and they had good reason to be. Lauren was the first in the family to attend college. And she was making a legal profession for herself, which made a lot of sense because she was known to be driven, enthusiastic, and very ambitious. Born April 18th in 1984, Tacoma Park, Maryland, she was the first born daughter to Karen and Bill Giddings. And she would go on to have two younger sisters by the name of Caitlin and Sarah. Now she loved animals, especially her beloved Pekingese, Butterbean. Love that name, that's so cute. Lauren was extremely popular and never had any trouble making friends. Not like me, who often sits at home alone because she can't talk to people. Seriously, y'all motherfuckers scare me. Humans are weird, she says, you know, because she is one and knows how weird she is. Anyways, unlike me as well, Lauren was really good at staying in touch with people. Like, if you contacted her, she'd call you right back or she'd get right back in touch with you. I'll forget about you and then get upset because I don't know why you're not talking to me and then I'll look at the messages and see that, oh shit, (laughs) I was the one that was supposed to be messaging them. Whoopsies, all right, well, I'm just gonna say, hey, like I didn't disappear for two fucking weeks. She was great at it. She made sure to stay in touch with her friends and those she cared for. 
In her last year of law school at 27 years of age and thousands of thousands of miles away, her and her two best friends from elementary school, Lori and Katie, stayed in close contact. Which is just to show you how serious she was. If you meant something to her, she wasn't going to leave your side or your life. At least not unless she was unexpectedly taken. Although Lauren had graduated from law school, she had originally planned to go to medical school. However, after a change of heart, she set her sights on studying law. In fact, she specifically wanted to become a public defender. So she really wasn't in it for the ching 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 money, 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 money. No, she was in it for the people. Lauren had always been drawn to the southern area of the United States. So when it was time for her to pick up and find a college to attend, she chose one in the southern area. She ended up choosing Agnes Scott College, which was a small woman's liberal arts school in Decatur, Georgia, just located outside of Atlanta for those of you who have no idea where Decatur is. She ended up graduating there around 2006 with a major in political science and a minor in religious studies. Then in August of 2008, the then 24-year-old Lauren enrolled in Mercer University located in Macon, Georgia. And this is where she would attend and get her law degree. But there was so much more to Lauren than just her academic achievements, which though amazing, weren't all she was. She was truly a kind woman, very thoughtful and extremely caring. It was in Lauren's nature, like many of us, to find the good in people, maybe even search for it when there isn't any. And maybe that's what made her friends with Stephen, a neighbor that she would grow somewhat close with, but maybe in Stephen's eyes, he wanted to be a bit more. It was everybody's kind of last hurrah. It was Friday night, end of June 2011. The graduates gathered at a local bar for one last blowout before hunkering down to study. And the next day, everybody was moving a bit slowly. But I did not see Lauren that morning. And then it was time to buckle down. All of the friends went off to cram. Really, you kind of just go into this hole and study constantly and don't really have any contact with anybody. So it took a few days to realize no one had heard from Lauren. Stephen and Laura both lived in Barrister's Hall. This is an apartment building which specifically catered to Mercer Law students. Stephen was born September 9th of 1985 to Mark and Glenda McDaniel. He grew up in a suburb of Atlanta called Littleburn. Or Littleburn, I don't know how to say it. Anyways, Stephen was actually extremely intelligent and he had a lot of interest as a young boy into his adulthood. He really enjoyed puzzles, Lord of the Rings, and Star Wars because, like, who doesn't? I mean, it's fucking Star Wars. No, I am your father. However, one of his favorite pastimes was reading, especially anything that had to do with history or even adventure. Him and his father also bonded greatly over their passion for samurai films. Stephen was also obsessively neat, even as a small child and into his adulthood. He was referred to as Mr. Clean to kind of give you a hint of just genuinely how cleanly he was. Until the age of 13, he actually was in the Atlanta Boys Choir as an alto. 
After he decided to leave the choir, his dedication to the church would continue on. He wanted others to have the same opportunities that he could to practice the faith in which he did. Kind of one of those like, hey, I did it, so like, you should too. He joined a group which would travel around Georgia and try to almost uh, recruit people into faith and he would also restore places of worship to try to help faith continue to thrive in other communities. Which totally great and commendable, not even saying anything bad, I just wanted you guys to see like he was a pretty upstanding person. Uh, something, something changes because he's a really bad guy. Also from a young age, he admired Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. He also considered himself to be extremely conservative when it comes to politics. Stephen worked really, really hard in high school, which would pay off. He graduated in 2004 and he earned a presidential scholarship to Mercer University. As an undergraduate, he majored in business. After graduation, he enrolled in Mercer Law School and in the same starting class as Lauren Giddings. When he had begun law school, he had high hopes because he wanted to become a federal judge. Little did he know he wasn't gonna be doing that. Mm -mm. In college, he really kept to himself, working hard and spending a lot of time in his room. Just, you know, he could thrive that way, I guess. Described as being shy and slightly awkward around other students, he almost never really went out and rarely ever drank with any other friends. He was somewhat a loner. His mother insisted that he wasn't like a hermit or anything. He was just really focused on his work. Stephen was also in the Federalist Society along with Lauren. In fact, the final year that they were in school together, Lauren was elected the president of the society, and Stephen was the vice. Stephen again, it was a psychopath who cowardly allowed darkness and evil to consume him. He should never be permitted to prowl the streets of this world again. That is the voice of Karen Giddings, the mother of Lorne Giddings, the Mercer Law grad who was killed almost three years ago. Just a week before jury selection was expected to start, Stephen McDaniel pleaded guilty to malice murder this morning. As part of his plea deal, McDaniel will serve life in prison, and he had to write out exactly how he killed Giddings. Here's part of that confession. It was 4.30 a.m. on Sunday, June 26th. Steve McDaniel says he entered Lauren Giddings' Barrister's Hall apartment with a master key from the complex wearing gloves and a mask. She woke up, told him to get out, and that's when he says he leapt on the bed, grabbed her throat, and began choking her. Some of her last known words, according to McDaniel, Stephen, please stop. McDaniel strangled her to death and dragged her lifeless body into the bathtub. I returned to Lauren's apartment around midnight Sunday to begin to dismember her with the hacksaw that was later recovered from the laundry room maintenance closet. I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in several black trash bags separately, and discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpster across the street from Barrister's Hall Apartments. He writes he put her wrapped up torso in the garbage can at the apartment complex early in the morning on June 28th. McDaniel said he never sexually accosted Giddings before or after he killed her. In fact, from his statement, his motive is still unclear. McDaniel wrote he joined the search party late Wednesday night, still in a dreamlike delusional state in which I believed at the time, while taking part in the search, that Lauren was still alive and that I had not done what I had done, 
even searching the empty law school in a delusional hope of finding Lauren alive and well, as if I had not really killed her. To this day, McDaniel says, I am not delusional or without morals or decency, but says something in his makeup must explain what he did. After the two moved into this apartment complex, they, well, they kind of got, I guess you could say, became friends, got to know each other a little bit. Not too well, but Stephen did ask Lauren out several times. This could be why Lauren didn't really want to get to know him too well, because she said no and he kept trying. Not really a good basis for a friendship, knowing that the other person just wants to date you. However, each time he asked, she declined and was very nice about it. She always made sure to let him down gently. Lauren did have a boyfriend, a longtime one in fact. David Vandiver, who was a lawyer in Atlanta. In 2007, the pair met when Lauren was interning at the law firm where David worked. At the time, Lauren was 23 and David was 20 years older than her. In case you're not good at math, that means he was 43. So in September of 2007, the duo began dating. The age difference didn't bother Lauren in the slightest because she really, really liked David. Instantly, according to her, they just clicked right away. They had so much in common and had a similar sense of humor. Their four year anniversary had been in the fall of 2011. Now, after she passed the bar exam, Lauren planned to move in with David in Atlanta. On June 26th of 2011, David was in California on a golf trip. Sorry, on a golf trip. <laughs> I felt like that needed to have like that voice, I'm sorry. He was the last person Lauren communicated with before she disappeared. On the evening of June 25th of 2011, she wrote an email which covered a range of topics. According to David, the email started with a line. I just had an awkward conversation. This refers to a conversation that Lauren had had with a friend who was asking some pretty probing questions about hers and David's relationship. One part of the email was rather alarming. She mentions how someone had tried to break into her apartment on that Thursday night, but from the way she writes it, she didn't seem as though she was really, really concerned, just more like startled even referred to the people as Macon hoodlums. David was on the way to the airport to fly back to Georgia from California when he received the email. So he read it, but he didn't reply when he got it. He just like, you know, skimmed the email, saw everything, and then he actually wanted to talk to her in person about all of it. However, Lauren and him wouldn't have this conversation. In fact, Lauren would never be heard from again. Throughout the week leading up to Wednesday, I had called, emailed, and texted her, but it was nothing serious. So when she didn't respond, I never thought anything weird of it. It was just something that I never really needed an answer to. In May of 2011, Lauren and Stephen both graduated from Mercer Law School. All they had to do now was pass their Georgia bar exam. And if they did, they officially would be certified to practice law. Law students at Mercer spent much of June barricaded in their rooms, buried deep in their textbooks, trying to make sure they can retain every ounce of information to pass those exams. 
Lauren told her friends and family that she would be studying pretty much constantly. Therefore, they didn't really need to worry if she didn't reach out or didn't respond to much of their messages for a bit. One of Lauren's best friends, Katie, from elementary school, I'm pretty sure I mentioned her earlier. If not, here you go, Katie. She's in Lauren's life, or was, well, she was still living in Maryland and employed as a healthcare worker. By Wednesday, June 29th, she got kind of concerned that she hadn't heard anything from Lauren at that point for four days. Like, yeah, she's studying and preparing for something really big, but four days is a little bit excessive. Like, she knew Lauren was really busy, but she would have at least sent her some sort of message or reached her by now. So Katie began to sound the alarm about this uncharacteristic silence that Lauren was emitting to everyone. She started contacting other mutual friends and Lauren's family, asking if anyone had heard from her, maybe even seen her, but nobody had. At least not since that email that David had received Saturday evening. The last time friends had seen Lauren was also that Saturday, but it was in the morning. Also, that previous Friday evening, the 24th, her and several friends had actually gone out for some drinks. So after this like last night out before they had to all study and cram for this bar exam, she ended up staying at a friend's house on the couch and then the next morning headed out to her, her <laughs> words, her house. After she left her friend's house that Saturday morning, she went to the Macon Country Club. She went here to use the pool to swim and just kind of like clear her mind and relax. David actually gave her his pass to use while he was in California that weekend. So around 6.30 p.m., she then bought some food from a fast food restaurant and then went back to her apartment. Lauren's sister, Caitlin, called a law classmate and a good friend of Lauren's, Ashley. Caitlin asked Ashley if she could go knock on Lauren's apartment door, you know, just like check on her. Ashley agreed, but when she went to Lauren's apartment, there was no answer. And she did try the door, but it was locked. She could see that Lauren's car, a 2004 Mitsubishi Galant, was still parked outside. Now, despite the fact that they were in a different part of the country, her friends and family started getting the feeling simultaneously that something just wasn't right. Finally, on Wednesday evening, Lauren's other childhood friend by the name of Lori Suspic. Really hope I'm saying that. Suspic, Suspic. I'm, I'm really bad with some of these names. Again, I'm sorry. She was living in Chicago and she had also been trying to get a hold of Lauren for days. Finally, she called the Macon Police Department and asked about filing a missing persons report. And she went in, called me back, said that all of her stuff was there, purse, keys, the car was still up front, wallet, you know, school ID. The alarm bells were now deafening. I hung up with her and called my uncle, who was a DC policeman, and just told him, like, there's, you know, everything I knew. And he said, tell her to go outside, shut the door, and call 911. response to this call, an officer goes out to Barristow Hall around 11 o'clock in the evening. They see no signs of a forced entry at Lauren's apartment and everything seems secure. Ashley, who knew Lauren kept a spare key, decided she was going to use it to enter the apartment. Her and a small group of friends who also lived in Barristow Hall went inside. They found all of Lauren's personal items in the apartment, including her keys, purse, and cell phone, her laptop, but no Lauren. And I don't know about you, but usually, unless you plan on coming right back, you ain't leaving shit in your house. At some point, while Lauren's friends were looking for her or anything in her apartment, guess who would show up? That's right, Stevie Boy. 
other people found his presence a little bit weird, a little bit weird, but he was uh, a neighbor, so okay, maybe he can be there, he's helping. Lauren's cell phone was completely out of battery, so they decided to plug it in. They discovered that the last time she made any phone calls or sent any text messages was Saturday. The group that was then standing in her apartment decided to call 911. Two university police officers arrived and spoke to all of the students. They began to get very alarmed at what the students were sharing with them. This is when the police for the university reached out to the Macon PD to help assist in what was becoming a rather odd missing persons investigation. Together, the officers and students would begin searching the apartment complex, even expanding out into the surrounding area and into the library at the university. There was no sign of Lauren, but that didn't mean that the investigation or the search was over. It's to be discovered by police, and soon there was this. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I... We're, we don't know where she is. I mean. Stephen McDaniel's bizarre performance in an interview with our affiliate station, WGXA. His reaction on hearing the discovery of Lauren's body immediately captured the attention of investigators who found it strikingly suspicious. What about um, in the, like, the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, any, had you seen anything there? I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. By 9 a.m. on June 30th, an official investigation into Lauren's disappearance was launched. Dozens of officers are now taking up residence, basically, in this barrister's hall, trying to find any clue about where Lauren is. They're searching, they're interviewing, even talking to Stevie Boy. Sorry I keep calling him that, but also no, I'm not. Less than an hour after this investigation is fully launched, two detectives enter the area to the left of the apartment complex where the trash bins are kept. Before they have much chance to even look around, they start to notice an extremely foul odor. And they realize, oh, that's coming from a trash bin. We should, we should go check this out, right? Now, they're pretty experienced detectives and they immediately know what they're smelling. They begin searching through the trash bin where the smell is coming from. The bin was, of course, full of trash, but it didn't take very long for them to find the source of the smell. And what they were staring at was absolutely horrifying. There, in front of them, wrapped in black trash bags and dressed only in a pair of jogging, sorry, jogging shorts. It's like my mouth is full of peanut butter randomly during a podcast. It's like I shouldn't be speaking for a living because my words are sometimes difficult. I'm really sorry. I'm not trying to be weird. My brain's just a little funky right now. Bear with me. Anyways, they're staring at this horrific sight of part of a body, completely wrapped up in trash bags and wearing only jogging shorts. It's a woman's torso. And although at this very moment, they weren't positive that it was Lauren's, but in a matter of hours, it would be solidified. And wouldn't you know, just on the other side of the same area, somebody was in the middle of an interview. 
forensic health professionals evaluate stocking, four essential items are taken into consideration. The nature of the relationship between the stalker and the victim, the stalker's motivations, the psychological, psychopathological, and social realities of the stalker, and the psychological and social vulnerabilities of the victim. The subject of this episode is 25-year-old Stephen McDaniel, and to gain a deeper understanding of the foregoing components, we have to extract certain elements through the knowledge of hindsight. The evolution of technology over the past two decades has made forensic investigations considerably more efficient. Two of the items on this list can now be examined through a single component, which would otherwise take forensics weeks or even months to conduct in a previous era. And that component is the Internet, or more specifically, Internet search history. The disclosure of web browser data is often a crucial piece of evidence for building a case, as it can unveil many aspects of a suspect's personality that would otherwise be kept hidden. And this is sometimes far more effective than anything else presented in court, including information extracted during a full confession. Without going into specific detail, a large majority of the subject's time was spent watching porn that surrounded the theme of violence and torture. He would also conduct back-to-back searches of how to commit sexual assault, and would type in several variations of the phrase, how to molest sleeping girl. To forensics, this is an overt sign of desensitization to sexual activity. Excessive exposure to online pornography can have this effect over time. It can build up a tolerance to the traditional idea of sex, therefore the subject may continue a more potent form of stimuli to get the same rush. For Stephen McDaniel, this began with watching abstract material on the internet and eventually led him to planning and then carrying out what he saw on screen. His target was 24-year-old Lauren Giddings. Now this interview that he is in the middle of when the interviewer says, what about the body? And he just like turns white and is like, oh my God. There is more to it than just his reaction. In fact, about 20 minutes after he turns white like he just saw the ghost of Christmas past walk up to him, he comes back to this interview with the reporter and it all resumes. He gives her several pieces of information, including what he and other residents at the apartment building found when they entered Lauren's apartment that night before. He tells the reporter that he knows of Lauren's activities on the evening of Friday the 24th and also the following day. He doesn't explicitly say that he saw her on either of those days, however, he just knew what she had done. Throughout the interview, Steven speculates about what might have happened to Lauren. He says she went jogging a lot, and he wondered if she maybe was snatched while out on a run. Many people online have commented on how after Steven was told about the body being found, he appeared to kind of put on quite a show. He started to show that he was upset and even started to cry. Although, if you look closely, there's not actually any tears. Often a telltale sign that somebody feels no real remorse. But there does seem to be a, uh, a quick switchback because very coherently, he can answer questions. Almost as though whatever's going on is all an act. But Stevie Boy isn't a really bad guy, is he? Is he? The answer is yes, undeniably, without question, yes, <laughs> he's a piece of shit. And McDaniel's performance didn't end there. He told reporters he'd wish he had lent Lauren one of his guns to protect herself. Yeah, I heard something, maybe I could have helped. 
Within hours, cops start looking a whole lot closer at McDaniel, a 25-year-old law graduate described by friends as quirky but intelligent. Investigators learned that friends considered him a bit creepy, saying he had an obsession with zombies. He had often asked others how to commit the perfect murder. His deception knew no bounds. Remember him, distraught and frantically searching for his missing friend, Lauren? He knew she wasn't going to be found. I mean, alive. So by July 20th, Stephen was still sitting in jail for that burglary charge I told you about way earlier. It was coming up on three weeks at this point. Everything goes quite quickly from here with regards to this investigation. Between July 12th and the 21st, police searched Stephen's apartment several, several times. They seize a ton of items. Between all of the searches, here is a list of what was taken. Two handguns, a rifle, a rope, four baseball bats, a bayonet, a chain mail vest, a camera, a laptop, a cell phone, receipts, a green scrub sponge, two keys, a journal, Sony PlayStation 3 and a PS2, Microsoft Xbox and accessories, CDs, memory sticks, and memory cards, another laptop, different from one that was seized in a previous search, another camera, two porno magazines, a pair of women's underwear, which were found to have Lauren's DNA on them, and packaging for a hacksaw. In another really disgusting twist of this investigation, the memory sticks that were discovered in his apartment had 52 images of indecent exposure of children. You know, like child pedophilia and child pornography. Oh, it's fucking gross. I can't even finish the statement. Also, while searching his laptop, they found some really disturbing things. Searches, they believe, were specifically about Lauren. He searched countless times about uh, nude Lauren Giddings, so like flat out put her name there. There were other searches like how to molest a sleeping girl and how to permanently erase search history. Mm, he failed at that one. They did also find that he visited a lot of porn websites which featured cannibalism and dismemberment. Listen, I'm not here to kink shame, but what the fuck? Okay, listen, everybody can be into weird things, but what? the fuck. Red flag. Red, red fucking flag. Red thousand flags. The hard evidence quickly came rolling in. He had in his possession both the master key and a key to her apartment. He had a flash drive that belonged to her that contained hundreds of her personal photos. His computer history showed an interest in her Facebook and LinkedIn pages and sometimes would be searching uh, for images of her around the same time that he was looking up violent pornography. And it went far beyond cyberspace. Of course, we found, uh, you know, her underwear in his apartment. But even more damning, something Lauren had no idea was going on. Cops say McDaniel had free access to her apartment for some time and had been stalking her every move. The linchpin in all this was when we found deleted video that he had used to surveil her home on the night it appears that she was murdered. And that was found on a camera in his possession. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. On August 2nd, 2011, police issue an arrest warrant charging Stephen McDaniel 
with the murder of Lauren Giddings. Here are just a few pieces of evidence that are referred to in the warrant for his arrest. Investigators recovered a hacksaw at Barrister's Hall, which had been hidden in the laundry room of the apartment complex. Forensic examination of the saw would reveal that it had traces of Lauren's DNA on it. The packaging of that very same hacksaw was found in Steven's apartment. One of the keys they seized from Steven's room turned out to be the master key for the apartment complex, which would have given him access to every single apartment, including Lauren's. Shortly after Lauren's torso was found, investigators received a phone call from a roommate of Steven's during his undergraduate days at Mercer. Thad Mooney. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say Thad. Seriously. It's like Chad's cousin, Thad. Fucking can't take it. I'm sorry if your name is Thad and I'm offending you, I really am. Anyways, Thad told police that they had lived together and how Stephen would often tell him that he could commit the perfect murder and he would never get caught. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he does. Anyways, the following day, August 3rd, Stephen would appear in court for the murder that he was facing. He pled not guilty. Because, of course, they always fucking do. Then, on August 23rd, he was charged with seven counts of child sexual exploitation. You know, for all that child pornography that they found. In December, Stephen would plead not guilty as well to those charges. His bond would be set to $850,000, which his family was just like, mm, I can't, I can't pay that. Mm -mm. So he remained in jail and awaited his trial. On February 21st of 2013, prosecutors announced that they would not pursue the death penalty in this case, which always fucking pisses me off. I don't know how you feel about it. And you know what? I get it. Oh my God, it's not humane to kill somebody. What if they like end up understanding that what they did was wrong and they feel really bad and they, you know, get better. Super fantastic, awesome, great for them. Uh, that person that they killed, isn't gonna just, you know, come back. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they reform, the victim's gone. So I'm always gonna think if you kill somebody and it's with malice, full intent, you know what the fuck you're doing, you could have stopped at any point, you should die too. However, in this case, there would be no death penalty. And I'm guessing because Steven was someone who knew the law, this meant he should go ahead and probably say something. He took a wooden pole and he duct taped that camera to the end of the pole and then he held the pole up really high to peek inside her window. On the day Lauren's remains were found, McDaniel was arrested on unrelated burglary charges. Cops pounce, interrogating him for answers. Like a zombie in a trance, his monotone voice mostly kept saying, I don't know. You're gonna look at this right here, this little girl right here, and you're gonna say you don't know? I know you know. Tell me, bud. I didn't do it. Yes, you did, Steven. Your head's with the body. Quit lying. We want you to, to tell it so that way people are understand you're not a monster. Things just, you got out of control. It's a sickness. You hurt this girl. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You hurt that girl. Within a few weeks, McDaniels was charged with Lauren's murder. In an absolutely shocking move, on April 21st of 2014, 
he would plead guilty to Lauren's murder just one week before his trial was set to begin. Now, as part of his plea deal, Stephen had to give a statement detailing exactly what had happened to Lauren the night that she was murdered. If Stephen accepted the deal in this whole plea bargain, then they would drop the charges of the child exploitation and all that pedophilia sh shit. Oh my god, it's so nasty. He's such a gross man. At this point, when he pled guilty, this had already been going on for three years. Because he pled guilty and a plea was made that came to a deal, this could move on faster for Lauren's family and they could receive some form of justice instead of sitting in a painful trial in hopes that the man who killed, who they believed and strongly were really 100% sure did kill Lauren, could possibly get away with it, which I don't believe he would have, but you know. We've seen stranger things. Insert music, I just don't want to get copyrighted. Would you like to know what happened to Lauren? It's gruesome, but here we go. On Sunday, June 26th, around 4.30 in the morning, Stephen put a mask on and a pair of gloves. He used that master key that they found in his room, and he entered Lauren's apartment. He insisted he didn't sexually assault her, but he did watch her sleep for a bit. And when she woke up because he moved, causing the floor to crack, this is when she saw him. Immediately, she tells him to get the fuck out. He jumped onto the bed, put his hands around her throat, and began to strangle her. The two started to fight, and they fell off the bed. Once on the floor, Stephen would strangle Lauren to death. He then placed her in the bathtub in her own apartment, and then just stepped back into his across the hall. He stayed there for the entire day of Sunday. Then around midnight, he returned to Lauren's apartment and began dismembering her body using that hacksaw that police found in the laundry room with her DNA on it. You know, the one that had the wrapper in his house or box. I don't know what hacksaws come in, but it's casing. <laughs> After all of this, he disposes of her remains really horribly putting some in black trash bags and then dumping them in the trash bins that belong to the apartments. Or I believe it actually was the school campus across from the hall, I'm not positive. And then he also tried to flush others down the toilet because like I said, he's super fucking smart. Now, Stephen did, I guess you could say, get a pretty excellent deal considering he was convicted of murdering Lauren and cutting her up and then literally dumping her body parts like trash. You see, he will be eligible for parole eventually, when he is 55 years old, in 2041. I don't think that's the justice he deserved, but that is what he got. He did ask for a new trial because he believes that his constitutional rights were violated. <laughs> okay, shut the fuck up, Steven, you murdered somebody. Shut your mouth. My constitutional rights were violated even though I violated morale rights, you know? Like, what the fuck is that shit? Anyways, that is the story of Stephen McDaniels, or the murder of Lauren Giddings. He told us that the rest of her remains were placed in a different dumpster. Tragically, they have never been recovered. And you want to know where the rest of her body is, am I right? Yeah, I think for my parents, it's super important for them. I mean, you have this baby, you raise this baby, and then someone does something like that, and then you don't even get her full body back to be able to bury it. I think that's, you know, extremely hard on them. It's an excruciating pain that can never be relieved. For now, the only solace for Lauren's family, McDaniel was sent to prison for life.
And that was the tale of Lauren Giddings, along with her friend, her neighbor, a fellow student, and her murderer, Stephen McDaniels. Okay, now that we're here at the end, let me put crime and all things weird, fucking crazy, odd aside, and let's get real for a minute. I'm going to start with some good news first. First up, a new podcast is going to be coming your way. I can't tell you exactly when because I'm not exactly positive. But a friend of mine and I are trying to get something together that is going to be just something I'm, I can't wait to share with you. A lot of things are being ironed out. We're trying to figure out scheduling and more co-hosts, but it's going to be a brand new podcast. Don't worry, this one's not going anywhere. Just going to have another one as well. Now, why a lot of you are probably like, all right, what is going on this episode? Why are you being weirder than usual and just what's going on harmony if you follow me on social media or you know me in real life you know that i'm smack dab in the middle of a really rough breakup i'm actually currently moving to another town and leaving where i'm at i'm going to still try to create and i know people are going to be like oh my god no don't others are gonna be like oh that's great you're keeping your mind distracted i'm doing this because it does keep me distracted it allows me to like look at things around the world and not think about the pain that i'm experiencing also for some reason, when I'm feeling all kinds of funky, I like to like research this stuff. I, I don't understand it. I know my brain is weird. Believe me, I'm very aware how weird my brain is because my relationship literally started going downhill because my brain needed more than what somebody could give me. So all I ask is for a little while, please bear with me, guys. I am handling a lot, really stressed out and in a lot of mental and emotional pain. Recently, in the last few months, I'm dealing with mental illness diagnoses, things that explain a lot with my my health and my head growing up and into my adulthood, and now really put answers to things. But with this diagnosis comes the reality that my life is never going to be normal. Any relationship that I go into will never as well be normal. And with that, I'm learning that I have a lot of healing to do and a lot of searching for me. So this whole podcast is still going to be here and there's going to be a few bumps, a few changes and whatever going on for the next few weeks and I'm sorry. All I ask is to be understanding of me. I'm hurting, but I'm still here. So with all that said, I look forward to talking to you guys on the next episode of What the Actual F. Hopefully that is next week, but I will be preparing to load up a moving truck and travel two towns over into my new place with my son. So, I love you guys. Thank you for being here this week. Thank you for listening. And if you're still here, you're the fucking best. If you want to check in on me, you can send me a message at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. If you have a case, a story, anything. Hell, if you want to tell me how much I suck, go right ahead. But whatever you do, stay safe. Because all in all, I don't ever want to tell a story like this about you. So, until next time, send me good vibes. I'm sending them to you. I can't wait to talk to you. I love you. Bye, guys.